American children spend roughly 33 hours a week at school. What goes on in the classroom directly shapes them and impacts their families. It also affects our future as a nation and as a church. What happens when schools erase what is most important? What happens when schools pressure children to reject their beliefs? Where can parents turn? How can the church help? You'll find answers here on Religious Freedom Matters. Welcome to our education series. I'm your host, Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. My co-host is Joan Desmond, a veteran reporter and senior editor at The Register. Welcome, Joan. Hey, Andrea. Great to be with you. Well, Joan and I are really excited to bring you this series. It's a special five-episode series looking at the growing threat to religious freedom posed by the very places that should be upholding and promoting it. Religious freedom clashes are happening more and more in our schools and universities, and as a mother of 10 children, I'm navigating these waters myself. For this series, Joan and I will explore with expert guests the many facets of religious freedom, not only court cases that spark headlines, but the hidden stories of discrimination that Catholic families and others encounter. And we'll also talk about the growing success of parents, teachers, students and religious leaders spreading the gospel in a vibrant and orthodox way and standing up for religious liberty. In today's podcast, church historian and EWTN News' executive editor, Matthew Bunsen, will join us to share important insight on how respecting religious freedom, especially recognizing the role of parents as primary educators, promotes a healthy society and strengthens the church. But before we begin our conversation with Matthew, Joan will walk us through news of parents raising their voices in my home state, the Commonwealth of Virginia. Take it away, Joan. Thanks, Andrea. Well, Andrea, I don't think we'd even be talking about this emerging parental rights movement without the pandemic. It brought parents and children together. Parents started to look at what their children were learning online. Parents started to wonder when the kids were going to get back into in-person instruction. And when they started to attend board meetings, they also began to get engaged on other issues like critical race theory, gender ideology. Um, In the case of Loudoun County, which you know well, since it's right next door to you, it's one of the most affluent in the whole countries. And among other issues, the school board was debating a transgender bathroom policy, which would allow boys who identified as transgender to go to the girls' bathroom. That raised concerns and tempers started to flare in late June, where a parent, Scott Smith, was removed from a school board meeting and later charged with obstruction. That parent became a kind of icon for a lot of parent activists who embraced sort of his intensity and passion about advocating for his children. But on the other side, He was also seen as kind of an outlier. You know, what was this parent doing? He had completely lost all perspective. Well, this October, we got a whole new take on why Scott Smith was there in the first place. It turned out that his daughter had been sexually assaulted in May in the girl's bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt. And then Smith had discovered that the same individual had allegedly assaulted another student in another school where he was enrolled as investigators continued to look at the first claim. No, that's unacceptable. Unacceptable. And I can't even imagine the concern and worry that all parents uh, had in hearing about that news. It, It bothers me, and I think it bothers everyone that's listening right now. I think what's really striking is the lack of 
appropriate response by school board officials and other law enforcement in the area really helped make this an issue, a political issue. And that drew attention at a level that nobody expected. You know, and Joan, in addition to Loudoun County and the problems there, just the neighboring county where I live, Fairfax County, had parents very concerned about what kind of books were in the school libraries, but they were silenced when they tried to go to the school board. And as you mentioned before, it got to the level of politics. Our most recent gubernatorial race had the two candidates sparring out in a debate, and one candidate, Terry McAuliffe, um, basically had a a tone-deaf response. Let's listen to a clip of uh, the candidate McAuliffe on this very issue. So first of all, this shows how clueless Glenn Youngkin is. He doesn't understand what the laws were because he's never been involved here in helping Virginia. But it was not. The parents had to write to veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledgeable about it, also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Now, Joan... We both know the results of that election, but in case anyone doesn't, uh, McAuliffe lost, and a newcomer, Glenn Youngkin, is now the governor-elect of Virginia and has been reaching out to more parent groups to try to be more responsive and to have greater leadership. What other things have we seen um, that are chilling parents in their ability to speak out and to look behind the curtain when it comes to their children's education? In late September, the National School Board Association asked the federal government for help addressing an alleged rise in threats against its members. Then in early October, Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General, directed the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to help local school boards um, respond to what they saw as an increase in threats. And there was even the suggestion that these could be presented as possible acts of domestic terrorism. I mean, when I read that, Andrea, my jaw really dropped. And I thought, what would I do? I mean, I have been a parent activist, as many of us have, you know, in my day, my kids are older now, they're in their late 20s and 30s. But I've had issues about the new math, about one thing or another. And I'm thinking, what would I think as a parent to see how, you know, the kind of official response my concerns got? Well, there definitely is a desire to chill parents' uh, response and outrage or even involvement, it seems. But there is a very disappointing involvement. This is from our nation's top law enforcement officer, who instead of defending the interests of parents and families in improving education, are threatening investigations and potential prosecution. We've also learned recently of agencies that following up on Garland's memo have taken things into their own hands. What is going on at FBI, Joan? The FBI responding to to Garland's directive have moved forward. And a whistleblower from the agency told GOP lawmakers in mid-October that the agency has set up a process for tracking threats against school board members and teachers. We're not talking about some kind of ideological activist groups. We're talking about parents here, but the directive says that the law enforcement agencies might be concerned about ideologies. Like what kind of ideologies are we talking about? Anyway, the whistleblower 
warned that the move could open the door for the Bureau to collect information on parent activists. So far, Garland and the FBI have defended these actions. An FBI official told the Wall Street Journal, which broke the story, that the agency has, quote, never been in the business of investigating parents who speak out or policing speech at school board meetings, and we are not going to start now. Well, that's a relief to hear. But nevertheless, when you hear that the FBI is investigating these cases, I'm thinking, well, if they're not investigating parents raising objections to critical race theory, mass mandates, or transgender bathroom policies, are we fully back to in-person instruction? What are they concerned about? I'm not aware of any other issues out there. Well, one thing's for sure. They are saying, we're watching you. And that's a very big concern, um, both as far as silencing discontent and also will come and inspire parents to look at other alternatives. We've seen a rise in homeschooling. We've seen our numbers of our local religious Catholic schools, uh, their admission numbers are, are surging. And I think that more parents are seeing that they have options out there. Hopefully, our state legislatures are going to respond to the needs of parents who can't afford to make that change by giving them tools, whether it's vouchers or charter schools setting up. But we really do need to know that parents are in the driver's seat when it comes to their education. So I'm really, really glad that in the midst of all of these difficulties, people are still standing up for their interests, for their children. Now, joining us will be Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, as I mentioned before, is executive editor at EWTN News, and he is an expert on the goings-on in the church and across the world. Thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us. Always great to be with you, Andrea. It's a real privilege to be here. This is an important podcast. Well, I, I fully agree. Um, and I know that Joan does as well. Now, when we're, we're thinking about religious freedom and its relevance to education, I think it's important that we get some common understanding of terms. What do we mean by religious freedom is a great place to start. Now, as a lawyer, I think about religious freedom often as legal limits on the government. What is restricting the government from interfering with worship or with a free expression of religious belief in life. And we've heard a lot from the courts and a lot of great guidance from our Supreme Court on where the state can't reach. So in the context of education, the state can't reach into the hiring and firing decisions of religious schools, of our Catholic parochial schools, because that is part of their autonomy. So we've got something called the ministerial exception that prevents the state or the government from getting into the issues of hiring decisions and questioning whether they violated anti-discrimination laws, for example. We also have issues related to the speech that's going on within schools. And we have a number of cases dealing with students who want to have Bible clubs and being able to have a Bible club after school along with the other school activities that a school may host and that that isn't a problem for the establishment clause and it actually furthers the free expression guarantee of, uh, of students and of their families. But we were talking earlier, Matthew, Joan and I, about some of the issues about curricular decisions. And Joan, what is your biggest concern right now about religious freedom and its protection for the individual and for the family 
in the pursuit of truth inside a school? I would say the biggest concern is the respect that may be lacking to people's faith-based beliefs um, and to the idea that the parent is the child's primary educator. There was a time in which public education experts understood this and respected it. Um, now, I think what's so fascinating and disturbing as well is that we are seeing that this whole uh, national debate on parental rights, religious freedom and education really is about our deepest values. What matters to us? Why are we here? What should our children learn? What are the priorities in their education and what should not be in their education at all, at least not without the parent's permission? There's an ideological divide. Should parents or the state be the child's primary educator? I think if we did a national survey, we would get a mixed response. Perhaps people of a certain generation would be more likely to say the parent should be uh, the, the child's primary educator and be the one responsible for supporting or opposing curriculum decisions and have much more freedom to opt in or opt out for their child. But that isn't happening in many places. In fact, it's hard for parents to even know what's going on. And we can speak to that later, but those are my main concerns. Well, and Joanne, I can't uh, agree with you more. And I think it's very important that we know this isn't just a problem affecting public schools, that even some of our private, our Catholic schools are battling with this issue of curricular decisions that maybe parents are fighting against that may actually go against Catholic teaching, whether it's critical race theory or the creep of gender ideology. Matthew, what is the church giving us as far as guidance as parents and Catholic educators? What have you seen? And can you share a little bit about some of the documents and, and guidance that has come from our church leaders? No, absolutely. The one of the fundamental realities for from the Catholic position is articulated so well by the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but also by a number of uh, the popes of the last generations. The, the simple reality is that the right to religious liberty is rooted in the obligation and responsibility of every human person to seek the truth about God, to practice true religion as God has revealed it, but also remembering that religion is not a private matter of personal opinion, but it has obvious public significance. And so from the church's standpoint, uh, the right to religious liberty uh, is not simply a, a, like a moral license to adhere to error, nor is it a supposed right to error, but rather it's the natural right of the human person to civil liberty. In other words, immunity within just limits from external constraints in religious matters by political or civil authorities. This is a natural right that really needs to be acknowledged uh, in society, but especially in the juridical order of society, as the, the catechism really continually stresses, because it constitutes a civil right. Now, looked at from that standpoint, what we're seeing is that we have to recognize that there are cultural tides that are seeking to push us first out of the public square, reduce our rights to freedom of worship rather than freedom of religion, and then demonize and even criminalize what are, as you both have beautifully articulated our constitutionally protected rights as believers, especially as Christians. And the movements um, that we're seeing are poised especially uh, to challenge the dignity of the human person and even the most basic understanding of what it means to be human. 
And to challenge those then puts us in a position of having to re-articulate the dignity of the human person at a time when that is literally up for grabs. I'm going to share a story because I love to share stories from my personal life. It came earlier this summer. I took two of my older kids to do a, a tour of colleges. I've got a senior and a junior, and we were looking at my alma mater, my undergraduate alma mater, and we get set up to get the student-led tour, and two cutie pie little wildcats from Northwestern were going to give us a tour of my beloved campus in Evanston, and they started off by sharing their pronouns. And they asked everyone around in the circle, parents and students alike that were touring, to say, what is their preferred pronoun? My boys, of course, looked at me with wide eyes. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> you know, and, and, and of course, they just said their name and where they were from, and we went on our, our way. But it, it really did strike home the indoctrination of a somewhat erroneous understanding of identity and and grounded uh, in biological identity. Um, what was very interesting, the next, just last week, I brought one of those same boys to a well-regarded Catholic university just on the other side of the Potomac from uh, Virginia, not the Catholic University of America, which was excellent in their tour. But again, um, we were touring around and there was a table and the table had students for choice in a Catholic university. And it was with clear support and funding perhaps of the university. I felt that I wanted to be one of like Jesus and the money changers, <laughs> but it was very disconcerting. And I asked my son, I said, Gabe at, at the end, what did you think of the tour? And he said, you know, it's a very beautiful campus but I just got upset that they kept saying they were Catholic. Mm -hmm. These are tough times, and this is higher education. Joan, you've been reporting on a number of these problems going on on college campuses as well. What kind of trends are you seeing both in more secular campuses and in our college campuses and our, our Catholic tradition? Well, actually, I think what was really striking is you have movements secular and religious for basic constitutional freedoms, First Amendment rights, free exercise rights, but also speech rights. I just heard there's uh, plans afoot to establish a new university, the University of Austin in Austin, that would actually allow for more diverse um, debate than is permitted now in many schools, many universities and colleges. So you have Catholic colleges where a Catholic professor can be canceled. You have state universities where a professor raising objections to some kind of, it could be gender ideology, it could be dissenting opinion on some subject, even something to do with the pandemic. So there are questions being raised about whether academic freedom is respected. And then within Catholic schools, universities, and even high schools, you have a question about whether the school, which is identified as Catholic, is in fact upholding those tradition or has actually targeted those who are attempting to uphold the traditions. This goes for school clubs, it goes for individual professors and students. And then you have other schools that I think have done a fabulous job like Catholic University of America, which you just mentioned, where I think there's been a conscious effort by the president who's stepping down soon 
uh, John Garvey, truly an icon of kind of 21st century Catholic education. He brought back the connection between character and content in the classroom, promoting virtues across all discipline in schools and in school clubs and in dorms, single sex dorms. So he's an example of someone trying to do something new. You might say, well, gee, why is that such a big deal? It is a big deal because many Catholic universities have been secularized as, as many of the top universities like Harvard were once religiously based and are now secularized. We've learned a lot from the experience of those elite now secular universities. It's a wake up call for Catholic universities. And what's really interesting to me is you have someone like John Garvey who can revive and rebuild the Catholic identity of a Catholic institution like Catholic University of America. And that provides an example for everyone. And I've seen it, you probably have in, in private high schools that are Catholic. You have a fabulous uh, headmaster or headmistress who can turn the school around, revive its identity, really inspire parents to deepen their own faith and inculcate their children in the faith at home. Everyone is working together, pulling from the same org. Or you can have a school that is divisive, where parents feel like they're not being told what's really happening when they ask. And there's a case out here in California of Catholic high schools. Um, these are Jesuit schools mostly where parents have raised questions about what's happening um, and they're not getting answered. Joan, you make a really good point about sometimes not knowing what's happening when you drop your kids off, especially, you know, the, the little ones. Um, it, I always know that when we come home and sitting at the table, I'm always going to get the best sensational news of their school day, you know, when Porter decided to crawl into a, a foxhole, but I may not know what's going on, you know, what's being taught, what's being taught and whether what's being taught is consistent and building upon the faith tradition of, of my home as a Catholic home. Matthew, you've done a lot of research and writing on the church's position and its understanding of the role of parents in education. Mm -hmm. Can you summarize for us, not only that we have the right to be the primary educators, but what does that entail? Well, it, it entails uh, having the authority to guide what you your children are actually learning. That's fundamental. It, it also entails the rights and responsibility. And that's something that I think a lot of parents, even especially Catholic parents, forget that there is a responsibility to do two things, to raise your children in the faith fully and to form them properly. But then the other is to make certain that the education they're receiving really does lead to a well-rounded person that goes beyond simply knowing math and, and science and other things. It's that human formation. And it goes back really to the, the question of the dignity of the human person that we've been talking about already, but also then making certain that the environment in which your children are raised and are learning is the proper one for them. And it does actually reflect, as you said, the values that we teach, which brings us really to one of the key aspects and great challenges that we're facing today as a church, but also as a country, and that is the loss of identity on the part of Catholic education. Now, there are many, many excellent schools, excellent high schools, especially excellent colleges, but 
we are seeing a withering away in the last decades of a real sense of identity, all the way from the parish the parochial school, all the way to the greatest of the Catholic universities, or at least historically that have been. And the number of examples that we can turn to of a loss of that identity is painful for parents. And so there are a lot of hard choices like you have to make. Are you going to send your children to a Catholic university, for example, where that Catholic identity may not be found, or you're going to send them to a secular school where you actually have a chance of finding a, a solid Newman Center where they the can Thomistic actually preserve. Institute. I'll put exactly. a plug in for the Thomistic Institute of the Dominicans <laughs> yeah. as well. Exactly. So this is a, a set of hard choices for parents, but um, it's one that, that we have to make. Matthew, I thought you really summed it up so well, and it's certainly something I've dealt with personally at the high school level, at the college level, and I feel like there are so many practical as well as philosophical problems. You know, the supply chain of young Catholic teachers who can go into schools and teach the faith and bring it along, that's a huge issue too. The, our ability to exercise our full religious freedom as parents also has to do with practical impediments. And, you know, maybe there's a place for that in our conversation, but I've seen that as a major issue today. I've also seen where some really bad Catholic schools, the whole culture is so entrenched where a local ordinary has actually gone around them to start something new, you know, like they have these Chesterton Institutes. They're trying to start over with the classical education and the other system is so entrenched, they can't move it. And parents will have to choose. Do we want to go someplace new? It may not have much of a legacy. We don't have that feel-good alumni feeling. But this is something that might really be, might really help my child flourish. Or do I just sort of stay put with kind of the, what we know and kind of make the best of that one? So lots of choices that are not always easy for parents to make. And I think, Sue, that there's... Um natural system that's being built, a kind of ecosystem that's being built that is good news on the one hand, but really terrible news on the other. It's terrible news because you have parents, Catholic parents now who are sort of gathering together, galvanizing uh, to try to create an education system for their kids or to influence the, the Catholic education system that really does reflect what we need to be as Catholics. That you know, is, is, it's a disaster in a way because why we have to do this in the first place when we should have a very solid and reliable Catholic system of education, which we have historically had. But it's good in the sense that the parents really are starting to come together to take that responsibility. But they're also, I think, deriving a great deal of confidence and comfort from knowing that you're not alone. Yeah, ab absolutely. Amen. Amen. You know, I say to my friends when they're they're frustrated and concerned about the schools that they're sending their children to or that the, the neighbor's kids are going to or their grandchildren are going to, and I say, we are made for these times. We are able to make a difference. We have the tools and we've just got to continue to push back, to be more creative, and to really see that with these rights that we have to educate come responsibilities Fortunately, we're on the side of truth, so we've got in our toolbox a whole lot of tools that can help us along the way. Thanks, Matthew, for joining us. 
And thank you for listening to Religious Freedom Matters, the education series. I'm Andrea Pachati Bayer, director of The Conscience Project. You can read more about our work at conscience-project.org. You can also find all episodes of Religious Freedom Matters there and at the National Catholic Register website. That's ncregister.com. Write to us with your comments or send an audio recording to religiousfreedommatters at gmail.com to let us know what you think about this episode and why you agree that religious freedom matters. Thank you.